Hello, I'm James Carlton and welcome to God Forbid, with a question today for everyone in their life. A question for you, too, and one you must keep asking whether you like it or not. But you don't have to answer, even though you're always asked by people, by your conscience. And the question, who are you? Who? Your job, your values, your name, your house, your family, your history. And when any of this gets interrupted, then who are you then? Each of us has an identity. And that's an idea of who we are and our place in the world. And given you and me and the world we live in are always changing, and that's happening all at once, just working out just who is you and me is at the very least dynamic. But with our God Forbid panel, we have a brother and a sister to journey with. Normally, I introduce them, but given the theme of the program, they can introduce themselves. Welcome back to God Forbid, Kim. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you very much. Now, um, how do I, how do I say who I am? Now you have to choose what it is about you that makes you you. So the first question is, who are you? Actually, I'm. I, yes. I'm, I'm from security. I'm serious. Who are you? Well, what are you doing here? Yes. Yes. The reason that I get through the door, which <laughs> is a rank issue, I guess, uh, is is you know possibly that I'm the vice president of Dayana, the gay Jewish group, um, and I'm organising Mardi Gras uh, float with all the complexity of Sydney Cricket Ground. But, you know, I'm very interested in non-duality, which is interesting because it seems like a very progressive, you know, new age sort of idea. But then my Jewish roots, you know, the most famous prayer in Judaism is the Shema, which is Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, which is going from the duality of me and the text and moving into the unity of, of oneness. So I grapple with that. I'm also a therapist and, you know, the interesting thing in the therapy context is that you enter into a relationship with the other, but the field that's created is a very united one. And I'm a spiritual seeker and, uh, and that means that I am individuated and seeking those moments, those glimpses of that which is a little beyond my sense of self. Now, all you said, Kim, was true. And I'll give you a full name, Kim Gottlieb. But there's other things you could have said. You could have, when I said, who are you? You could have said you're slim. You could have said you're well-traveled. You could have said that you've uh, helped generations of uh, Jewish kids, boys and girls, get through their B'nai Mitzvah. Oh, most importantly, you could have said you were a Kiwi. Why didn't you say that? Oh, I know. It was on my list of things to say because my mother once said that I should introduce myself as a Kiwi fruit. <laughs> but I, I realised that in the background of everything that we use to describe ourselves are power differentials. And so I realised on reflection that what I was looking at is in relation to an interview on public radio because my size is unlikely to grab, you know, a big audience, but my status as somebody engaged with, with Mardi Gras is likely to engage people more and I feel a responsibility to maximise those factors. And so the roles that get more status 
whether that's contextual or political, are the ones that I bring forward. You know, I'm also someone who, you know, had eggs for breakfast, and I don't think that is um, uh, is going to be something I'm going to be bringing forward. Mm. But the choice you make about how you answered my question is not a choice only you have to make because only you got invited on, God forbid. It's a choice everyone makes every day. Yes, and I suppose there's the uh, the default, that the tendency is that it isn't really a choice, but your external referencing, that you're thinking what is going to be good for you, which is going to be good for me. Yeah. So how do I sell myself best and how do I look the most fabulous and how do I take up the most space in a way. Don't change a thing. That's my advice. (laughs) Now now let's go to our next panellist who can also introduce herself. A warm welcome back to Josephine. We've missed you, Joe. The reason we've missed you and the only reason anyone misses someone is because of who they are. So who are you? Well, um, today I'm... I'm a grandmother um, because I'm with two of my grandchildren who I haven't seen for a long while because I've been living in Queensland and I've crossed to New South Wales, which is part of a journey I'm on. And I'd say I'm actually part one of my realities is that I'm a border crosser and I've it next week or so, I think it's 20 years since I moved from England. So I don't know. I'm obviously not a kiwi fruit. I'm probably an aging English rose with a few thorns uh. <laughs> attached and that sort of thing. And at the moment, I'm in another crossing point. I'm an Anglican priest, and I remain an Anglican priest. But I'm also um, about to become minister of Pitt Street Uniting Church in the centre of Sydney. And I was assigned, also assigned male at birth, and I'm now claimed what I feel is a more um, authentic identity as a woman. And therefore, I fall into a transgender uh, nomenclature as well. Um, but there's a lot of other things to me. I was fortunate enough in many ways to go to Oxford to, to for a degree and such like. And I'm white and therefore, you know, actually quite privileged because we're, we're a mi- mixture of things, aren't we? You know, I mean, I've, I've done quite a little bit of work like, lately with Indigenous people with a reconciliation action plan we've had in our diocese. Um, and it's been quite good for me because sometimes you can get trapped in sort of a queer world where you feel that, um, especially trans at the moment, where people are at after you and, you know, you're misunderstood in anything. And that then you step into the world as a white person of walking along, along with uh, First Nations people and you realise their experience um, and that sort of has helped keep me a little bit humble I hope about you know my own sort of struggles and the struggles of people like me whose gender is is questioned. Thank you for sharing that Joe. Also with us Kim Gottlieb we are asking the question who are you on the inside? <laughs> As we go through life, oftentimes we accumulate many roles just within the family. We're child, maybe parent, cousin, grandparent, sibling. We're employers, employees, unemployed. Is that who you are as distinct from what you are? The essential inner self exists outside every external role we put on it. 
Believe me, I've tried. And this gives rise to the question, is our identity just an amalgamation of our version of all the roles we take on? Well, acclaimed social scientist Hugh McKay tells RN's Philip Adams this is not a new question. There's always been this tradition in Western philosophy and mysticism and religion that there is a kind of essential human nature and that in order for us to lead authentic lives, we need to be true to that authentic human nature. Most of us at some point, and it's often the textbook midlife crisis, you know, it's often around about our 40s or 50s, where people start to feel, look, actually, I know I've got a sort of an identity. I've got a, an exterior shell that, that, that the world sees, a kind of image that I project or that other people project onto me. And that's all about my roles, my responsibilities, the way I lead my life. But actually, there's more to me than that. I'm, I'm sometimes conscious that I'm not being true to some deeper sense of who I am. And, and I think when people go on the journey, I think what, what we discover is that the traditional idea of identity is all about how we're different from each other. As the word says, you know, it's a way of identifying how anyone is different from anyone in terms of gender, ethnicity, religion, politics, whatever you like. But when you go more deeply into the inner self, it seems to me right at the core, what we discover about ourselves is that we're all one, that, that we share a common humanity, which is not about difference at all, but about uh, how we are the same, how we are indivisibly members of the one species, then there's no escape from the next logical step, which is this is a species that depends entirely on neighbourhoods, groups, communities of various kinds functioning harmoniously if we are to survive that responsibility to the species is to treat each other well. You cast a very wide net because you ask us to ponder a quote from Gandhi. The best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. Mm. That's one of the most... He said a lot of profound things. The, the, the best way to find ourselves is through the service of others. In other words, via compassion, because when we exercise compassion, that puts us in touch with the authentic self. And I think uh, it's important to say when I use the word compassion, I'm not talking about emotion. I'm not talking about affection. I'm talking about our responsibility to the species to treat each other well. And as Gandhi says, when we do that, uh, when we commit ourselves to the service of our fellow human beings uh, in whatever form that service might take, that's when we truly find who we are. And that's social researcher Hugh McKay in conversation with RN's Philip Adams for Late Night Life. We'll put a link to their full conversation on our website. Well, Kim Gottlieb, what do you make of what Hugh and Philip had to say? Well, I think the, the question about authenticity is an interesting one because I know as a gay male that my sense of identity as a male was, I always felt very much pushed out and exiled from that when I realised I was gay. 
And so then I develop a much more fluid sense of I, I definitely want to be a man. I sometimes dress in women's clothes, but I don't want to be a woman. I just enjoy the fluidity of exploring a range of genders. And then, you know, interesting to have a transgender person with us, which is great. Um, but in engaging with transgender, there's uh, on the transgender side, there's a very strong requirement from that side to have to be clear about pronouns but actually from my gay identity side I'm not so clear about pronouns and I sometimes feel a little bit pushed into he him pronouns when sometimes I'm he and sometimes I'm, I'm her you know mm. and gay culture has a lot to say about you know hey girl and it, it isn't meaning a woman it's meaning you're a gay man and we we are very fluid about gender but, but let me ask let me ask this then, Kim, in light of that, I mean, clearly these are markers that uh, you and the dis and the disparate and diverse LGBTI communities um, cling to and relate to as identity markers. So does that mean the interview we just heard, Hugh McKay, Philip Adams, is your judgment of the interview influenced by the fact that it came from, to use the language we use today, two old white cisgendered men. Yeah, I, I, I suppose there was something a little bit um, uh, simplistic and sort of, I don't know where to put it, but the tendon, there's, the ten, I tend to see uh, the narrative that, that says our authentic um, movement towards compassion is the way um, I, I think I... I hear that in Judaism we talk about tikkun olam, of, of healing the world, but I tend to hear more in Christian circles that the movement towards compassion, and I'm sure they're both linked, but with compassion, people, a lot of people are compassionate and they're kind of saccharine do-gooders. And so the notion that that takes you to a unity place it's not always true if we're not clear from that internal point of view about what is motivating the expression of compassion. Now, Reverend Dr. Josephine Inkpen, this is not just a theological tension point between Jews and Christians, it's cultural as well. I mean, you know, there's much more focus on justice in the Jewish culture rather than forgiveness. Yeah, well, I'm, I think that's very helpful what Kim said about terminology. I've done quite a bit of interfaith work, and it, it always seems to me that at the depths of things, um, and I think that's partly maybe what you were talking about earlier, Kim, in terms of non-duality, is that I think in, as it were, as one great mystic put it, in the cave of the heart, actually, we enter into much the same space. But how we name that and how we then express our reality is different, and words in different traditions and different cultures as well are not quite the same. And so, yes, I, I, th I think there are things to be teased out. And I would have said that that conversation that, that we heard, but it's a little bit more complex. And I think there are some things that, um, and Kim's already spoken to, like, as a gay man, that as a, a transgender woman, I'd, I'd want to say something different. And as a woman as well, I think women, I mean, there's it, a sort of an assured place but I think women have had to fight for their self and and you can't give away yourself if you haven't actually established yourself and that certainly would be part of my thinking so I'm a little bit I'm, I'm part wary I mean it's a deep 
religious sense, Jesus was on about it, about how you you lose yourself in order to to be saved, as it were, to, to be fulfilled, to grow. But there's also a sense in which religious language and other language can, can actually um, use the language of sacrifice to serve other people. And, and it's actually a means in which women and uh, many people of, of different color and of transgender people have actually sacrificed their themselves. And that's certainly I can see in my life, a lot of that sort of been, um, I, I poured out myself in, in different ways, probably to escape myself. So it's actually in this second half of life, unlike what Hugh was saying, is that it, I found that I've needed to, you know, to, to claim my own identity properly, rather than, you know, if I'd been um, a cisgender male or whatever, that in, in a good position that I, I might have been able to achieve things in life and then uh, move into another stage. You know, that's sort of classic kind of sense. But, but I think, as I say, I think it, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's different for different types of people. But Reverend Dr. Joe, you have achieved so many things and you're about to become minister at Pitt Street Uniting Church. Yes. And remember, remember we discussed they were big shoes to fill, Reverend Dorothy McRae-McMahon? Absolutely. And remember we agreed <laughs> what kind of shoes they were to fill? Yes, well, they're women's shoes. That's very yes. important. And, that's, and, and, it's a tra- and, and also, um, you know, and queer shoes as well. I mean, the gr- wonderful tradition in Pitt Street of being, I mean, I'd love it, the fact that we're sort of like, you know, squirreled away in Pitt Street there between the two mighty cathedrals. And, and in that space, the community there has been, you know, very open, creating spaces for uh, interfaith, for uh, standing for refugees in the past, for struggles for, um, you know, against racial oppressions and such like. So I, I feel immensely humbled and, and challenged, you know, to continue that. And quite thrilled, actually, that the Uniting Church has had what is actually quite courageous to, you know, to put um, a crazy English Anglican trans person, you know, <laughs> in that position, because it is intended that it is a beacon of uniting church values, which include justice that you're mentioning before, but, you know, generosity and openness and exploration in faith. I think that's a key thing is that these things aren't fixed, that, that it, it's opening up a dialogue and a conversation. But people will come to explore themselves more deeply and in relationship to others at different points, I think, depending on the opportunities and and journeys that they make. And Kim Gottlieb, last word on this to get a Jewish perspective. At your synagogue in Sydney, what they had Australia's first same-sex wedding, but within a short walking distance, you also have ultra-Orthodox synagogues where even straight men and women can't sit together. But within the Jewish community, the animosity between such extremes is, is well, in many ways, there's no animosity, especially when you compare it to, say, the extremes of other denominational conflict. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I did want to just say that I have enjoyed many interfaith services at Pitt Street Uniting Church, so I'm very pleased that Joe is, you know, moving into those shoes because it's uh, a very comforting place for me as it's comforting at our synagogue. We welcome all sorts of people, including the Shabbat dinner that we're having on the 5th of March before Mardi Gras, and that's Emmanuel Synagogue. You know, you, we think in terms of transgender that, that, the notion of diverse 
gender diversity is new. But actually, if we go back to the Talmud, the the you know the rabbinic uh, exegesis on the Bible, there are actually six genders uh, named in that. And so sometimes you have to go back to actually move forward in the same way that uh, some of the issues around sexuality that are limited in Judeo-Christian narrative are very different if you go back into Greco-Roman. What were they, Kim? The six genders? Uh, well, uh, the Zahar was, was the word for memory, which is related, as, as you were talking about, to identity. And so that was uh, translated as male, that identity and male was the obvious patriarchal thing. And then nekevah is the word for a crevice, which is a bit like the the, the um, family program. The, the vagina being the name for the sheath. Have I named the wrong thing? Well, it is in the Talmud. I suppose we've got to get out clause. So this is the nekevah, and then then there's uh, the, and the androgynous, the one who is is both male and female, the tumtum that is indiscriminate or obscure around sexuality, the alonit, which is somebody who is female at birth but doesn't develop uh, at puberty in those ways, and the saris is the male who doesn't develop um, sexually um, at puberty. But then I should just go back to the fact that you know, back in the day when we were first in the Mardi Gras parades, there was vitriolic material coming out in the papers from various rabbis. But because it's been discussed and because the world is changing, those strong narratives against LGBT are less common. I mean, it's interesting to even name the LGBT because lesbian and gay, the mainstream communities are okay with the more diverse positions, you, can't, you can say the, all the letters, but you can't presume that everybody is on board with all those letters. And that's true within gay culture, and it's true, you know, in terms of the Jewish community. Interesting. Well, on our end, it is, God forbid, we are with Kim Gottlieb and Reverend Dr. Josephine Inkman. If you had to think of a very serious and solemn religious occasion, possibly the Day of Atonement for Jews, Yom Kippur, may well make the list. In fact, ancient Jewish holidays don't strike one generally as the most festive on the Australian multicultural calendar, but perhaps that's a stereotype that needs addressing. And in so doing, it may change the meaning of our question, the theme of the show, who are you? Because for Jews, it's the party festival of Purim where you sometimes see ultra-strict, ultra-observant, ultra-orthodox Jews who have the most fun of all, including alcohol. Purim is the little festival before the big one, Pesach or Passover, and Jacqueline Nino, the rabbi at Sydney's Progressive Emanuel Synagogue, tells RN's Rachel Kahn, Purim and Pesach are both festivals about liberation. Yes, but in a very different way. Um, when we talk about Passover, it's kind of liberation from enslavement. And I think Purim is kind of a liberation from the constraints and strictures that we put on ourselves. And so it's really a time of 
great emotional sort of joy and celebration, but also a real getting rid of social barriers and any kind of constraints that we may otherwise have upon us and giving us the opportunity to be and sort of experience anything that we want. How did this come out of a story of the Jews being held captive in Persia? Well, if you read the story of Purim, which is based on the book of Esther, it's filled with great and grand sort of parts of a story. It's everything's exaggerated, everything's larger than life. So it's kind of a little bit of a parody of a story as well. So in some ways it begs not to be taken too seriously, but the essence of the story is that the Jews were destroyed by sort of an evil person who was part of the government and he had tricked the king or convinced him to make a decree to kill all the Jews of the kingdom because one of the Jews in particular refused to bow down to him and refused to give him the respect that he felt he was due as well as a number of other things along the way. So it really is quite a fanciful big story and I think that it lends itself much more to the kind of celebration and silliness and letting go that we find in the Purim celebrations more than the other much more serious I think um, difficult struggle liberation stories that we have in our tradition and I think also if you look at the Purim story many people are hiding their identity they're concealing who they really are behind masks and facades and towards the end everyone is exposed and revealed um, for who they are but I think that is also part of our celebration of Purim is the idea that we can take off the masks that we normally wear and sometimes by putting on a mask we allow ourselves to be more free than we would if we were having to be who we really are. Gosh, there's a lot of parody and satire in there, isn't it? Inversions and so forth. Purim actually has the requirement to even poke fun at rabbis. Absolutely. All of the normal social constraints are thrown out the window. So we dress in fancy dress. Part of the tradition is to try and interrupt the rabbi or the cantor or whoever is reading the story of Esther. It's traditional at Purim to read the Megillah, the scroll in which um, we find the tale of Esther. And uh, if you look back in our tradition, there are lots and lots of um, rabbinic parodies and jokes and stories and people taking the Purim story and turning it on its head and taking normal things that are quite unholy and twisting them around and making fun of them. And this is being done by the rabbis and by the scholars and the students of Torah. These are the people who are usually extremely serious about their scholarship and about their study. And this festival gives them permission to kind of really let go and make fun of what is normally held quite sacred. That's Jacqueline Ninio, Rabbi at Emanuel Synagogue in Sydney, speaking with Rachel Conn for The Spirit of Things back in 2008. We'll put a link to their full conversation on our website. Well, Kim Gottlieb, what does uh, Purim mean for you, the, the day you put on masks and you spend the rest of the year getting your patients in psychotherapy <laughs> to take off their masks? <laughs> Uh, I think my proudest moment is that uh, the whole evolution of Emmanuel has meant that I can read from the Megillah, which is the sacred text, but I'm able to to do it in full drag and be celebrated (laughs) not just by the tradition but by the congregation. I tend to be a bit of a feature at the Megillah reading. Um, And so I'm very pleased that I'm wearing a dress that was my mother's um, which happens to have the sort of rainbow flag, rainbow colours down the down the front of it. Well, 
Let me tell you, Kim, I know a, a Greek Orthodox gay man who went to your synagogue and he said of it, if it were any more pro-gay, it would be a nightclub. <laughs> uh, we're very fortunate, it's true. Yes. Now, a, a bit more serious question I have for you, and then I want to ask it of Reverend Dr. Josephine Inkpen, is religion an identity you take on? Uh, is it as deeply ingrained as the other parts of your identity? Uh, I see my Jewish identity as belonging to a narrative, and it's a very rich narrative. I don't hold it between me and the next person, even though it it sometimes expresses itself in that way. I'm very comfortable with the whole diverse um, that all of us are fingers pointing at the moon. All these pathways are fingers pointing at the moon. They're not the moon. That's, and anyone who says this is the moon, uh, in my opinion, has it wrong. I mean, I want to say one of the stories about uh, about Purim, uh, it, and it's the, the rabbis say we should get so drunk on Purim that we can't tell the difference between Hamam, the baddie, and Mordechai, the goodie. And I think this is where if we pursue our path, we learn that that which is first seen as different can actually be seen as the same, which I think is one of the things that we've been speaking to. Uh, can you relate to that, Reverend Dr. Josephine Inkman? Uh Yeah, well, I mean, I'm actually quite interested with the whole story of Purimits and Esther. And there's a, a wonderful gay Quaker a performance artist and biblical scholar called Peterson Toscano. And he's fabulous. And he's done a whole lot of, that, of stuff also around transfigurations. And one of the things he points out about in the Esther stories, as in many other places in the Bible, for example, is the presence of eunuchs who many of whom were actually, you know, victims of war and such like. And one of the things he points out in the story is that actually, I think it's, I think there's about 12 of them, are eunuchs in the, in the book of Esther. And, um, you know, they're sort of like go-between people and they do sort of incredible things because they're not so regimented uh, and stark. And the other thing that's key for me for in that story, is, of course, Esther is one of the few books in the Bible that's, that's named after a woman and, and a central character in, and in all that. I mean, my parents, I always sort of think my father taught me justice and my mother taught me joy. And I, I see that in that, you know, in that book of Esther, of the joy and justice that must go together. And I think that's one of the contributions that a lot of queer people make. Um, back to the question that, that you asked me about identity, of religious identity, my own view, and I think it's, it's diff for different people, is that a lot of religion has been portrayed since about, um, certainly the Enlightenment, in Christian theology particularly, as a very propositional thing. You know, it's something you believe. And I think that's a message that's often pushed by people, whereas I believe it's actually fundamentally a matter of experience and practice. That's what I think is the heart of religion. And, and I'm struck in, in in both in Judaism and Christianity, that it's actually the experience of the divine, which I agree with Kim. Once you start to name it, you are like fingers pointing at the moon. But for me, my religious identity, my sense of God, is as deep as my sense of gender. Um, and I, I, I think that's a very important thing in this debate about religious freedom, um, because some secular LGBTR people say, oh, but you can choose your religion. You can't choose your sexuality or gender. But for me, that isn't the case. I mean, you can choose the type of theology you have and the, and the type of religious ideas, but you can't actually choose, um, you know, your experience 
of Christ or the burning bush or whatever else it is that's actually drawn you out of yourself into a deeper sense of reality. Is that true, Kim? I think if you do manage to have uh, some kind of awakening moment, then it is a privilege and it emerges sometimes by seemingly by accident. I know the Buddhists have the story about, you know, enlightenment is, is an accident, is the ultimate accident, but all we can do is make ourselves accident prone. And I believe that, that all religions are endeavouring to place us in a context of becoming accident prone to that awakening moment. And then if that comes through our religious practice, then it's going to belong to the narrative of a particular religion. But it's quite obvious from experience that people can have those awakening moments, those moments of connecting to the divine any old time. And some people get them uh, abruptly, and it can be quite disorienting from a psychological point of view to try and integrate that. I think it happens with uh, the sort of psychedelics that sometimes they get uh, almost an epiphany experience, but it's so abrupt that they don't that integration can be difficult. Have any of your have any of your patients had it say at the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras? <laughs> Only under the mirror ball. <laughs> I actually meant it a bit more seriously, but fair enough. <laughs> ah, ah, look, one of the main reasons that I make sure that we have a Mardi Gras float is because I know that when the Mardi Gras um, happens and there's a Jewish float and there's an article in the Jewish news, that those conversations are happening. I hear story upon story of people who came out to their parents during Mardi Gras because it creates a, a opportunity. So that sense of of having your identity validated on this sort of once-a-year day makes a huge difference to people coming out. And certainly when we had Fair Day and so many people would come to us and say, I'm Jewish but I'm estranged from all the Jewish stuff, but it's so lovely to see you and to be able to bring my queer identity together with my Jewish identity. Reverend Dr Josephine Inkman, final word in this section to you. Well, for me... Um and, and I see that in a lot of the words that are used in Christianity about the trans words, transformation, transfiguration and stuff. For me, the, the self is always um, something that we're becoming. I mean, we talk about being human beings, but I think we're human becomings and that there's always something richer and, um, and deeper and, and more that we enter into if, if we see life as a mystery, whether you call it divine or whatever. And I, I resonate with what Kim's saying about uh, practice and and such like, and I think that's where religion is, it, you know, tries to trigger that transformation. I think at its best. Unfortunately, it's been used throughout history, and 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 not least in many Christian circles at the minute, to sort of to to sort of solidify the self we already are, and that's deeply inhibiting to the people who are then part of that, and then repressive to others because you know it's about control then then rather than this liberation that we heard of earlier in relationship to the festival of Purim. Yes. Well, how do we get liberation if you have to get hundreds of millions of people to agree? That's the question next as we look at the giant Anglican communion all around the world. On RN, it's God Forbid, with James Carlton. <laughs> Rest 
Do you know that Anglicanism, incorporating the Church of England, is the third largest branch of Christianity, first Roman Catholicism, second Eastern Orthodox Church. Anglicanism, or the Anglican Communion, has 80 million followers worldwide, and it's growing at a stupendous rate in Africa. And there are many tensions between the faithful in England and Africa and around the world uh, between liberal and conservative members. Tensions include the issue of sexuality, among many others. So is it possible for the One Communion to overcome these divides and remain coherent? Rowan Williams is the former Archbishop of Canterbury, the head cleric of the Church of England, the symbolic head of the World Anglican Communion, and he's speaking with RN's Andrew West. Can the communion hang together? Well, it depends if we want to at the end of the day. Wanting to means, I think, a willingness to see in somebody you disagree with the image of God, seeing somebody who reads the same Bible, serves the same Lord, loves the same Lord, and yet misdeclusions. Well, I'm inclined to say, welcome to the real world. <laughs> that's, that's what we're like. But can we be sufficiently grateful for the existence of somebody else not like us, for them to work with them and pray with them? If we want that, we can make it happen. As you know, it is the thriving parts of the Anglican Communion in the global south, in Asia, in Africa, where the churches are full, but these are the parts of the communion that have a very orthodox attitude to biblical teaching on sexuality. It is in the liberal West, for example, that is perceived by a lot of the global South as passending. I mean, how do you breach that, that gap? Certainly one of the things that really came home to me in my time as Archbishop was that we couldn't discuss these disagreements over sexuality and other questions without looking rather hard in the communion. And I found it sometimes disappointing and frustrating that people from the global north, broadly speaking, would say, well, you know, we, we know the right answer to these questions. Why can't these uneducated peasants? You know, that doesn't go down very well, and for good reason. It's a reinscribing of colonial patterns, paternalist patterns, and you've got to go further than that. You've got to ask in the global communion, okay, so I disagree with what a brother or so, or wherever might say about this. So what have I got to learn from them? Why are they there for me? And how do I both listen and speak? How do I build up enough mutual trust to take us beyond the simple zero-sum model? That's long and hard, and a lot of our structures, as I say, don't really encourage that. So we need to factor in that, that power element very, very clearly. And that's the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, speaking with RN's Andrew West for the Religion and Ethics Report in 2018. There'll be a link to the full conversation on the God Forbid website. Well, I must turn to Reverend Dr Josephine Inkpen, a former minister in his Church of England, now in the Uniting Church. Joe, what do you make of his challenge? The growing part of your old church is not affirming of your transsexuality, much less your ordination? Well, it's not simplistic. I mean, African Christianity is quite diverse in itself. Um, I mean, if you talk to South Africans, it would be a very different sort of style. I mean, in black South Africans, not just white ones, and in other places as well. So I think it's a little bit more complex than a sort of, you know, global South versus global North. And and I, I disagree a little bit with what um, Rowan's saying. I mean, in the sense that, I mean, I think a lot of us Anglicans have, have, are open to talking to people, but it's not, it's not um, often it's the um, deep conservatives, the GAFCON type people funded 
also by people, sadly, some Australian Anglicans, not least, who refuse to come and talk. So, I mean, you, 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 it, it works both ways in that way. Um, and it's not just a matter of, I mean, I don't think it's a matter of looking down on, on poor benighted savages in Africa or something. I mean, I just think that's, that's really unfair caricature of, of um, liberal Anglicans um, because these issues are to do with, with justice and truth and people are dying and they're being hurt in all kinds of ways in many African countries. So the impact on places like Uganda and Nigeria, the stories that come out from gay people and trans people um, of the hurt that's, that's inflicted sometimes by, by church um, leaders even, and the sort of theology that, that is actually comes out of, um, and to some degree actually comes out of a Western point of view. I mean, if you look at, I mean, in the Pacific, I mean, it's, it's quite shocking, isn't it? I mean, you know, Fafafini and other um, gender diverse people in the Pacific will talk about how there isn't a problem actually in many um, cultures of our world, but it was when the missionaries got there that they laid down a sort of a Western pattern. And so the church has adopted that um, as distinct from the cultural patterns. And I think if you looked into African culture, it was it actually be much more diverse. So, but it's a huge problem for for the Ankans. I mean, it's it's not easy for us to resolve that. And I think I think Rowan's absolutely right. It's it's up to whether or not Anglicans want to be committed together, or whether or not they want to go and form, you know, sectarian movements, and and that that'll deny justice and humanity to one another. And Kim Gottlieb. What's your reaction to this question of unity and division in the global Anglican communion? Yes. Uh, well, I look at the, the structure of this uh, call within a particular group to consider the other. You know, the, it's really the Mordechai and Haman story in a way. And, um, and realising that since these are all Anglicans, because uh, I noticed his caveat that said, well, if we're in the, of, of the same mob, then it's harder to say we don't go along with you because we're part of the same mob. It's quite easy to say, oh, well, our values are different to your values because you're different to us. But here it's being presented in this way that, oh, this is all Anglicans and there should be some union and yet there's absolute uh, difference in viewpoint. And therefore there's a call for what I would call the resilient edge of resistance, where is the possibility that one can see the other and move forward? The challenge is where that is uh, really pushing uh, human rights. And so there's certain times where it would seem up with this, I will not put, you know, that it's like I cannot accept, you know, the, the barbarism that may be happening in the name of religion. I will not accept that. But I think we do want to develop the skills of being able to have the conversation with the other. And there's more talk about the call for it, but less on the ground um, activity because a lot of the interfaith and other dialogues have a tendency to go to the un uniting place and go to the compassion place mm. and not be willing to go to the place where there is real difference that needs to be spoken to. Well, Kim, as we spoke about before, there is this incredible diversity within your Jewish community where you can go from one synagogue where men and women are separated to 500 metres down the road, uh, same-sex partners are married. So how does your community stay more or less completely unified despite what would seem to be insurmountable theological obstacles? 
Uh, I think the example that you use is very interesting because I would the, the the fact of men and women being separate certainly has an aspect of uh, sexism and marginalizing women, but it also has an aspect of men's business and women's business. So there's a part of me that that really values the segregation as being meaningful and a part of me that has a problem with it. When it comes to the business of, of, of being queer friendly, um, the orthodox communities have, have, increasingly have a positive rhetoric that they're inclusive and they're never going to shame someone or exclude someone in relation to their um, sexual orientation. Mm. However, their narrative sits in this notion that we can't change halakha, that we can't change Jewish law. But the, actually, if you look at um, at Jewish history, these so-called immutable laws have been adjusted and changed. I mean, it's quite obvious from slaves and polygamy that some of the things that are, are fixed in the Torah have been changed. And I think... We know that a lot of things change, and they often change politically. Um, and it's really important that we look back into our history and not get stuck in simplistic views that are presented by people with power. But the alternative narratives that exist in history show us that many um, rulings have been completely changed and completely altered. Um, and yet the notion that we get from the Orthodox rabbis is it's fixed and it can't be changed. And that is an abuse of power in my view because they're being very situational about their notion of what's fixed and what's mutable. Well, last word in this section to uh, Josephine Inkpin. How will you change if we speak in a year's time? How will Joe Inkpin be different? Well, I'll be quite different because, I mean, I'm on a learning curve with the Uniting Church and it, it's sort of process and some of it's spirituality, but also by the people that I will encounter in in Sydney. And, and I believe that, you know, post-COVID, hopefully, that, that, we, that the challenges we have today should call us into becoming something more than we are. And so hopefully we'll draw on all that's rich in the past, where whatever that is, that's you know, enriched ourselves, but that we will that we will allow ourselves to work and listen with others, and that's often in, uncomfortable, but is is the only way for us to flourish together. And Kim Gottlieb, which means God love. <laughs> will you be different when you? <laughs> how, how, how will you be different when you're back on the show? Yes, um, you know, I've lived my life very much of an activist. And I, my therapist said, you know, people who are sometimes disempowered in, in early life will seek to find a way to feel empowered. And so I've, I've always been a bit feisty. And I think what I was noticing in this, uh, in this interview is that the opportunity to, to share a view comes with a certain intensity, which, you know, the, Archbishop, the ex-Archbishop of Canterbury was much more uh, measured and, and uh, uh, um, had much more spaciousness in his context, and I believe that is a power privilege uh, opportunity. Um, I think my tendency is to is that I'm going to pull back somewhat from this frontline activist position, and I'll be working more with 
doing things online and maybe writing so that I can present my view in the comfort of my own experience and that others can either be attracted and therefore um, enter into fertile conversation or those that are uh, too hard. It's like I'm here to fight the good fight and there are some fights that aren't worth fighting. And that webpage is kimgottlieb.com. K-I-M-G-O-T-L-I-E-B. And on our end, it's God Forbid. We're with Kim Gottlieb and Reverend Dr. Josephine Inkpin. Time for Wits End. Wits End. Yes, it's Wits End, the God Forbid quiz. As always, we begin with the buzzers. Kim Gottlieb, who as a professional counsellor is so successful, every patient he treats ends the session by saying this. Test your buzzer. Happy Mardi Gras. That's good. <laughs> uh, thank you. Okay. And um, Reverend Dr. Joe Inkpen, your buzzer is the voice of your own conscience sitting on your shoulder the second before your first sermon in your new church, Uniting Church, remembering you left the Church of England. What does your conscience say? Test your buzzer. There'll always be an England. <laughs> Do you like Vera Lynn? <laughs> yeah, she was she was a good she was a sweetie. Yeah, buzzers are working. Now this quiz is all about radical transformations. They happen throughout our lives, so often against our will, often without our pre-existing knowledge. Um, the first question, according to recent research from the University of Southern Queensland, how many times will the average person change careers in their lifetime? Three times, five times, seven, ten, or twenty? I'll go for I'll go for seven. And you are correct, Joe. But we do average seventeen different employers over the span of our career. Wow. And if you're at the ABC, they're all excellent. Next question: <laughs> How long do butterflies spend in their cocoon stage? A two weeks. B two months. C two working days. D two years. Or E all of the above. Well, I go two days, but I'm tempted with the all, the all of the above. Well, you're half right because you one of your two answers was correct, uh, <laughs> Joe. Cover the both. Uh, it is all of the above. It, apparently, it all depends what species of butterfly it is. Mm. Some, yes, that makes sense, doesn't it? Next question. Which Lord of the Rings actor came out as gay on BBC Radio at the age of 49? Happy Mardi Gras. Uh, oh, oh uh, yes. Can, uh, Ian McKellar. Yes. Yes. Correct. Yeah, and Ian McKellar was in Wellington and my mother was a, is a city councillor and he, he was on the panel for the Mr Gay New Zealand and so was my mother and so I got to meet him, which was kind of fun. Oh, that's a joy. Fact, he, your mother nearly won Mr Gay New Zealand? <laughs> she was judging. <laughs> Thank that. you. But I've always been very proud of the fact that she went on the, in the Mardi Gras parade and she had Ian McKellar to the house for dinner and, you know, she's been a big advocate and very supportive in her own time. Thank you very much. I did have to leave the country before I actually came out to her. Yeah, indeed. Next question, though. At arguably the peak of her career, Audrey Hepburn, we're talking about transformations, suddenly retired from acting and stepped away from the film industry. Audrey, why, why did she stop acting? 
I'll give you a clue. It's the typical politician's answer. Oh, it's spend more time with the family. Exactly. Also a lot of humanitarian work. That was the other reason. She said, I don't want to do movies, I yes. want to do humanitarian work. And that she did too. So Good on her. Good on yes. her. Yes, don't be typecast into one lifetime. Yes, good. Exactly. Very good. And with that, we say thank you to Reverend Dr. Josephine Inkpen. It's been a pleasure having you back on the show, Joe. Thank you. It's been a joy. Yeah. and Yes, it's so lovely talking to you. And I'd, you know, I'm really looking forward to meeting Kim as well when I get to Sydney as well. I hope, Kim, we can meet up and be enriched. Well, thank you for sure. Kim Gottlieb, indeed. Thank you from, I said, God forbid as well. Uh, it's always a delight and it's been especially nice to share this with Joe. And I, I do look forward to that journeying which, you know, uh, Joe's doing it from Brisbane, I think. But there is this internal journeying of moving towards the other and finding people where there is that resilient edge of resistance, where there is that opportunity to hang around long enough to notice that which is similar at the same time while respecting the differences that, that, that are not exactly the same. Yes, and with that... So, but I have to say a big happy Mardi Gras to everyone and, uh, and thank you, Sydney, for being a place where LGBTIQ people can be celebrated and can have a voice. And thank you to you and the ABC because it's a, it's a great privilege and a very important piece of work that you do. Oh, Kim, what a mensch. And with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. Kim Gottlieb, he prepares Jewish boys and girls for their B'nai Mitzvah coming-of-age ritual. He's also a professional psychotherapist, a supervising counsellor, helping grown-ups come of age in their own way, as we all do. Reverend Dr Josephine Inkpen, also with us. Her life journey has taken her from Durham County, the roof of England, to a life of ministry. She's about to become minister at Pitt Street Uniting Church in the heart of Sydney CBD, a significant posting indeed. Don't forget you can subscribe to the God Forbid podcast on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Email me at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. This has been God Forbid. Oh, 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 oh